0: Everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Alright, this week we are talking to John Hall from that excellent 70s soft rock band Orleans. Now, you guys remember them? They uh, had a couple of huge hits back in the day Dance with Me, and of course, this one right here, still the one. What makes John's story really interesting is that he eventually got into politics. And from 2007 to 2011, he served as a congressman in DC from New York. And he wrote a book about this last year called Still The One, A Rock and Roll Journey to Congress and Back. Now, this was a listener request. Listener Rob Goldsmith, who's been loyal from near the very beginning, thank you, Rob, requested John about a year ago, and we were finally able to make this happen. What's what's kind of funny is I love Rob. Whenever I hear from him, which isn't that often, but whenever I do hear from him, he's usually criticizing me for interrupting the guests too much. Too many, yeah, uh uh-huh. Too, many talking over, too much talking over them. I hear this from people a lot. All I can say is it's tricky when it's on the phone, but I know I'm trying to work on this. So in this interview, I made sure, out of respect to Rob, I tried to stay very quiet this time and just let John talk. Having said that, it's a little too much politics for my take, taste, and that's nothing against John. I, I'm one of these people these days who... I wouldn't say that I'm disillusioned, but I am so exhausted by politics, I don't really enjoy the topic anymore. And he did his best to sort of fire me up. I I am aligned with him politically in in almost every place. I just don't enjoy getting into politics. I want to talk about rock and roll. And we do that too, but the first half or so is mostly politics and his career and his experience in politics. So hope you'll enjoy that. I like the rock and roll stuff better. We talk about that hideous album cover. We talk about him divorcing the woman he wrote still the one with which is kind of an interesting story and just how he makes money unfortunately it's not as lucrative as it used to be to have a hit like still the one you would think you'd be able to live off that forever but it's not as easy as it sounds anyway john's a really good guy he called me from his home in the hudson river valley of new york
1: thanks a lot for doing this john i uh, i don't no, know if you no even problem. know what you signed up for so <laughs> I uh, For the last couple of years, I've had a podcast where I talk to the artists that I love. So the, the focus of the podcast is how artists, who, musicians, who are no longer sort of at the height of their spotlight, maintain yeah. careers in music. Well, them that's them,
2: an interesting, yeah.
1: Yeah. A lot of so, ways to do it, and I'm sure ex- it's... Uh, exactly. A lot, so everybody I,
2: has a slightly different path.
1: Right. And I've wondered, you know, like let's say you have a hit in 1984, can you? Mm-hmm. How do you pay your bills now? Can you live off that, or do you go get a regular well, no. job? Or you, you know what I, I mean? Had,
2: my my biggest hits were actually with the band Orleans, my buddies who I'm still playing with, were '75 and '76, yeah. 1975 and 1976, and so "Dance with Me" and "Soul" the one, respectively. And then, you know, we had a couple of records after that, and I had one. As the John Hall band in uh, Crazy one of my favorite songs yeah, Crazy years, which got yeah, a lot of play love on them. rock radio on what they call yeah. KMR at the time That's song we still get requests for. we do it in the show. It still gets played and so on. but the royalty structure has been completely uh had the rug completely pulled out from under it by the streaming audio, yeah, and yeah. the unfortunate decisions of the courts so far so far to allow them a license which I don't think is see they don't they don't have to pay anywhere near i mean. It's a tiny fraction of what terrestrial radio stations play, but they actually reach many more people. So a lot of writers and performers will tell you this, that what used to be a reliable ro- royalty stream has dried up to pennies or a oh. thousandth of a cent, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'll just I'll give you an example with Still the One, which is still being used for commercials and movies sure. or, you know, and played on – Radio stations, as well as, you know, heavy use in iTunes and the streaming audio services. But I got a statement a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, from Pandora that was an indicator of what was going on. They reported 1.3 million spins just on that channel alone. Yeah. 1.3 million plays of the One and sent me a check for $18. No!
1: Oh, I'm not what kidding, a kick in the and it, nuts, right?
2: <laughs> and you know that used to be, you know, it was used to be tens of of dollars for that song alone. Not to mention the other things I wrote for yeah. Janet Joplin and uh, and Bonnie Raitt and Linda Ronstadt and James Taylor and Ricky Skaggs and so on. Steve Warner had a number one country record that I wrote with uh, Steve Warner that he recorded that yeah, he had the hit on uh, in 1986. And Larry and Lance from Orleans and I sang backup harmony sound. It, it It was oh, uh, a really nice record. Uh, you can dream It's of a good day. one.
3: Well, I've heard it say the grass is always. I looked at you, the world never looked any sweeter, but I'll go home to
2: Yeah, I love that. Uh, it is a good song, and it's, all those tunes together used to be. Uh, well, they put my daughter through college. You know,
1: sure. They uh, yeah.
2: they paid for me to buy studio equipment, so I could have my studio at home. They don't do that any longer now. It's yeah. uh, it's more important to get out and play live, which I'm doing. You know, with Orleanians, unfortunately, it's more sporadic than we would like it to be. But in yeah. between, I'm doing solo acoustic shows, which are really fun, and actually. Uh, they're kind of booking booking music shows because yeah, I wrote a memoir that came out last uh, was released last fall and yeah, and there's a lot of interest from people in my music is not just in my musical work but also in my political adventures and being a member of Congress. I mean, it's probably the only working guitar player who I mean, Sonny Bono played guitar, but he's more of a TV personality and you know, sure. and he was a big star. But I mean, I, I'm the guy that played. You know, played behind yeah. Seals and Crofts and Taj Mahal, and you know, sang on a number one jazz record with Michael Franks, and and sure. uh, you know, played and wrote country hits and wrote music on Broadway and off Broadway and directed it and co-produced records by various. I very, very produced Bonnie Raitt's third album, Taking My Time, and I co-produced uh, the No uh album with yep. with Bonnie and Jackson Brown and Graham Nash, and so it's, it's a, a pretty widespread. Career, uh, including the Orleans successes, and and it's unusual. It's uh, it's also unusual that I was instructor of the year at at Hunter Mountain uh, Ski School in the Catskills in uh, 1997. Yeah, I I taught (laughs) skiing up at Hunter, and and, uh, I'm a certified Level Two PSIA instructor. I've also raced windsurfers, you know, competitively. Wow. I just like doing a lot of different things and sure know, sports being one. And the political stuff stemmed from environmental stuff, which yeah, it did. It usually you know, comes from your ox being gored. Sort of the first thing that happened to me was the New York State Power Authority deciding they were going to build a nuclear plant on the Hudson River, just six miles north of where I and my family were living at the time in Saugerties. And, I just decided I didn't want it for a neighbor. You know, I went to the hearings, I read the literature, the pros and cons. You know, I asked questions at the public meetings of the NRC and the Public Service Commission. And I heard that they had learned that they had spent $150 million of the ratepayers and taxpayers' money already without getting a single permit from the DEC or the EPA or anybody else. And they were just blazing ahead with this thing and flaunting the fact that they had the money and the power behind them and people were just going to have to accept it. And, right. you know, that was like the first time that I got really involved in doing something that was like citizen action and also a musical yeah. action. We did, There's was a group called Mid-Hudson Nuclear Opponents that I joined and, and, you know, went to meetings and protested and wrote letters and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But we also did a, a concert with Bonnie Raitt and Orleans at the Barterbone Theater in Poughkeepsie and raised a lot of money so that Nislets and Nuclear Opponents had not just a bunch of people. Now, there were a lot of people that joined that group, but they also had money to hire lawyers who knew what they were doing. And then it turned out that three days after the, or maybe a week after the Three Mile Island partial meltdown, they canceled the project and it turns out that it was the same reactor they had put down a deposit with a company mm-hmm. called Babcock and Wilcox for the same exact design as the Three Mile Island reactor and that didn't help yeah so, yeah no but kidding. it was it was partly other circumstances but it was also that uh people were starting to become aware of the problems with this way of generating power and about the nuclear waste problem and it was way before terrorism was the issue that it is, uh, the concern that it is today. But you know, yeah as James Taylor, you know, pointed out in the No Nukes movie, it's like, you know, he's during the press conference as part of the movie, he says, My great fear is that some non state actor or some, you know, terrorist group or rogue country will get a hold of enough radioactive material to make a dirty bomb.
3: Yeah. And
2: you know, and this is like nineteen seventy nine. Yeah. And musically it was an incredible experience and environmentally and politically it was like making a statement as a bunch of musicians and we had a lot of musicians involved in those shows and and in the movie and so on but it it feels good to do something like that and win on that issue sure, in particular on the plant near us and then you feel like you know you you flexed a muscle and it got stronger
1: yeah, And then the
2: next time I flexed it was stopping a, a giant dump and incinerator that was going of the last undeveloped farm in our town. There were a lot of people involved in that, too. And it was a bipartisan, you know, politically, as far as local politics goes, totally bipartisan that nobody in the town uh, wanted this. Um, basically, what we thought was going to be New York City garbage outlet because they were closing the Fresh Kills landfill in Staten Island. Anyway, I I just, you know, got. I sort of worked my way naturally into being chairman of this group called the Winston Farm Alliance that wound up, you know, stopping this farm from being, you know, turned into a pile of garbage, 200 feet high,
3: 200 acres
2: in area, and uh, you know, compacted by every day with like a layer of fill and then a a steamroller on top of it to compact it. So once again, it was like we. you find out that you can do something. That also was like part of why I got involved with the Ulster County legislature and served a term there. Well, it was, it was like in an 89 and served in 90 and 91. I did not run for reelection after, you know, we stopped that dump and incinerator plan. And I uh, also did, I was on different committees that had to do with, you know, goings on in the jail and, uh-huh. and uh, the methadone, you know, treatment program and, the mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you know, other community Affairs, you know, I worked on trying to get people who were good candidates for being weaned off of methadone to go to talk therapy and, um, oh, interesting. And try to get drug free, you know? Yeah and, yeah. and also to go to 12 step meetings or whatever they chose. And, it, you know, it was fairly successful. And good. But in two years, I just went, I went, I have to go back to playing music. This like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, they're not already somebody else somebody else do it and that was that continued I just you know kept playing music and writing songs and making records myself and with the band and Uh writing stuff which got to be more political and more environmental as I went along and then in 2005 uh, I moved to the other side of the river into Dutchess County had a different congressman she voted in ways that
1: uh, yeah I, I didn't agree
2: with and I set out to find a candidate I could support to run against her. And after speaking with the four Democrats who were already registered to run in the primary, I, I came to the conclusion that I might have a better chance of winning than any of them. And so I threw my hat in the ring and won the primary by better than two to one over the uh, C favored candidate. And, mm-hmm. And then I, I beat the incumbent, 12-year incumbent, who came with Newt Gingrich's contract with America. I uh, beat her by a couple of percentage points in the general election, and and wound up, you know, winning by a bigger margin two years later. And then and then losing the seat in in you know, 2010, which is okay. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why it's okay, and I'm just as happy to be out of politics. My doctor's happier.
1: Uh, my wife is definitely <laughs> happier. I've been and bet, yeah.
2: uh and my dogs are happier. Good, good. So uh but it's been uh and then I wrote this book yeah. which I started thinking about. People started asking me, you know, just in conversation, what was it like? How did you make the transition, you know? And or what was it like, you know, meeting so and so or going to uh-huh. you know, to Iraq and sleeping in the green zone, or what was it like doing this or that? And I, I started telling stories to my friends and relatives and just you know, little yeah. anecdotes, and they said, "Wow, you should write a book about that." Yeah. And I eventually did. Yeah. And so it's the first I've written articles for magazines, you know, op-eds uh-huh. for newspapers and so on. But first book I've written. Then. Well, good. And uh, it's work, you know, like.
1: Sure. Uh-huh.
2: Anything else that doesn't do itself, as my father, the engineer, would say, it's cathartic. I thought it was yeah, maybe but... very cathartic. Not not so much. I mean, the political stuff, yes, but writing about my family and, and yeah. because, you know, as if you read the book, you know, I lost both of my brothers and my parents, uh, starting in 2010 and, you know, about a three or three and a half year period. I, and I basically, you know, I, my birth family was you know, re- removed from uh, this life. And mm. so it was, and then I went through, you know, starting with my last year in Congress, I wound up with some pretty serious uh, health issues of my own. Okay. And uh it was interesting having just worked on and voted on the Affordable Care Act to find myself on yeah. the receiving end of uh you know of some really good health care from, you know, doctors and nurses who right. knew what they were doing and um and especially the E R nurses I think were like my my heroes. I and, can
1: imagine. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But it's, um, so now I'm kind of, uh, you know, so it's fine, five years post-op. And I'm, what uh, was the
1: operation for? So i got to tell you, I've, I've been reading your book, and I'm about 40 page. I have about 40 pages left. And, okay, well, uh,
2: I think you're just about getting there. Yeah, if so, so I haven't heard right. this
1: part. And uh, I've been, I just got it two days ago, so I've been kind of trying to okay. burn my way through it as quickly as I could. So what is the, op- and I have a million questions about that.
2: This other okay. stuff
1: from the book. But what is the operation that you're talking about?
2: Well, I had uh, in
1: quick succession
2: in September of 2010 when I was campaigning for the 2010 midterm after Barack's, you know, it was halfway through Barack's, Barack Obama's first term. And that's when a new president's party usually loses big time in the House, uh-huh. uh, if not the Senate, but definitely the House. It's been, um it goes back a century With two exceptions, those being uh, uh, Roosevelt, um, FDR's third election, when they waived the term limits for him because he was the hero for getting us all out of depression and public works and all that kind of stuff, and, and Social Security. And the only other time that a president, a new president, did not lose the House in the midterm was in 2002 when George W. Bush had just taken us into Iraq Mm-hmm. And it was only a year after 9-11, and it mm-hmm. was, there was still this rally around the president feeling right. going on. And so they they held the House in 2002, but the next midterm in 2006 was the one that I got elected in. So you know, I got elected in a midterm wave that was a Democratic wave and then lost the election in 2010, which was a Republican wave in the midterm. Sure. But anyway, so the surgeries were, the first one was, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, September
3: 2010, Mm.
2: had the surgery later that month, and three days later marched in a three-mile parade in Orange County, New York, in the town of Warwick. It was a Columbus Day parade, I believe, and I was wearing my suit and tie and everything and had a a pee bag with a catheter on underneath it, (laughs) and and nobody knew, you know, I just didn't want to. I didn't want to tell people because I didn't want sympathy. I didn't want them thinking I was trying for a sympathy vote. And I also didn't want people to think that I wouldn't survive the campaign or the term sure. or uh, wouldn't be able to work hard enough. And yeah. and uh, I didn't want my donors. I mean, Raising money is such a big part, unfortunately,
1: yeah, of politics
2: is. now. And then that, that was just starting to get worse. Now, that was the first post-Citizens United election. Uh, and I got clobbered by probably we think maybe $5 million coming in from outside the district, outside the state in the last couple weeks of the campaign from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce super PAC and from Glenn Beck super PAC and Carl Rhodes' uh-huh. super PAC and, you know, a few others. And, uh, you know, I raised three, you know, almost $3 million for a suburban New York, you know, suburban exurban New York district and it wasn't enough. You know? mm-hmm. And that's crazy. I mean, it yeah. basically keeps it keeps anybody who's like a regular person who doesn't have billionaire friends, of course, or isn't willing to sell out to billionaire corporations, keeps them from running. Absolutely. You know, that's a shame, and it's a yeah. It's basically a coup on our democracy, as I wrote in the book. And it's, uh, yeah,
1: it's interesting you say that. I reading your book, uh, it. Sparks a lot of the so I I'll be honest with you, I the last couple of years I am just I'm on politic fatigue. I'm I'm so worn out from sure, yeah. all of it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. All of the the whole system feels so rigged to me in so many ways. And just so you know, I fall on your side politically. But right. so I'm not this is not I'm I'm just I'm tired of Politics yeah. in general. You know what I, I mean? think everybody is. Yes. And in reading your book, I. So, one one of the big questions I have for you, when I was reading at the very beginning, you were talking about your optimism. Mm-hmm. Do you remain. How do you maintain optimism politically right now? And I'm guessing um, only a politician <laughs> could. A politician would have to feel that way. But because I just don't feel it. And I think I speak for probably thousands of other people, millions maybe who agree. We're just so I don't see I don't see fixes in sight anywhere, you know. Well,
2: uh I think it's really early in uh in this president's term and it's too soon to say who will arise from the center or the left to change the chemistry. I mean, I'm a First democrat, all,
1: but even I'm Paul, I don't i I've, I've become jaded to the fact that any one person or party or theology or whatever can save everybody, and even if it could, well, that, that's there are enough people true, to you know. mobilize that to not happen. That it will just the Koch brothers are going to buy something that, or pay someone off that's going to throw it all out of whack anyway.
2: Right, you know what I unless mean? unless somehow that Citizens United dis- decision gets mitigated somewhat. When I, w- I wrote, about, I think I wrote about it's in the book, and I don't know if you've gotten to it yet, but the Disclose Act that. Um, Congressman, now Senator Chris Van Hollen from Maryland wrote, which we passed in the House, but the Senate never took a vote on it because there were some Republicans uh, filibustering it or putting congressional hold, you know, senatorial holds on it, which is, uh, you know, something that I don't understand. But anyway, um, it would have required, you know, that these super PACs or corporations – or wealthy individuals disclose where they got the money that they're giving and what campaigns they gave it to
1: sure and
2: and that would have at least let people know something about the motivation of either the candidate who received it or the the, the donor i mean it's pretty obvious if you know somebody's like a CEO of ExxonMobil or a big coal company or something like that, that if they're making millions of dollars in donations to certain candidates, they're expecting to have policies that will allow those fossil fuels to be used more. Sure, of course. You know, so that's one very obvious case, you know. But it's, it's also true that my parents told me and my brothers during the Berlin Wall and the Cuban Missile Crisis that they had, the two of them had talked in private about whether they had... Made a mistake having children, mm. and we wound up surviving those both of those times. And, and I remember you know, when I was a father, a new father, and uh-huh. uh, and uh, Ronald Reagan got reelected, and I, I was saying, "Oh, we're never going to survive another four years of Reagan." <laughs> uh-huh. And we did, you know. And then <clears throat> when George W. Bush basically had the Supreme Court steal the 2000 election and give it to him when Al Gore had won, was probably going to win the recount in Florida, but had won already the, the popular vote nationwide. And it would have been a drastically different world with president Gore than it became with president uh, George right. Bush. So, sure. um, you know, we survived that. I yeah. was in, in South America with my daughter. She was on a Fulbright scholarship, uh, in Brazil. And we went down, my wife, Melanie, my, my, uh, present and and final wife, (laughs) and I worked in in Rio, uh, and and we went to a cocktail party, dinner party, with the grown-up, you know, the parents of her young friends who were all doing Mm -hmm. this sort of graduate work together. And at at one point during the discussion, one of the other parents said to me, do you think he can win again? And I said, President Bush, (laughs) you know, well, of course, you know, he won the first time. I didn't vote for him. But yeah. yeah, yeah, he could win again. And, uh, you know, I would call it a toss up. Yeah. Know? Although, you know, I can lay out my rational reasons why I would think that uh, John Kerry should have been the winner. But, you know, obviously, once again, it didn't, it didn't happen. Right. So we've gotten through a number of it's ironic, actually, because the Republicans like to say Democrats are the big spenders and you know, the big taxers and so on. But they're the ones who keep running up the national debt. Reagan ran up more debt than all the other presidents before him combined. Right. And, you know, George W., by putting in those unpaid paid-for tax cuts and fighting two wars without paying for them at the time with any kind of war tax uh, and just dumping it on the deficit, and then, you know, after the crash of 08. Uh, lucky Barack Obama gets to come in and try to clean up after George W. Bush, and and did mm-hmm. and left with a declining deficit and getting back sort of toward, you know, center ground and uh,
1: yeah,
2: and a, and a stock market increase that ran for almost the eight years that he. I mean, right now what's happening is a continuation of the Obama market. You know, it's booming, yeah. but it but it was up constantly from like 09 to you know the beginning of this year when when President Obama left office and and so a trend was already there so you know we've seen this happen i mean bill clinton balanced the budget and started paying off a little bit of money on the, on the uh on the deficit and around the national debt you know before bush came in and blew it all again mm-hmm. and so you know i i'm hoping that someday people will kind of uh figure out that the that the talking points are, that they're hearing are not necessarily true.
1: Right, but, right.
2: you know, I also came from a family that, I mean, my parents voted for Eisenhower. They were Republicans until John Kennedy came along. We were Catholic, and Kennedy was Catholic, and that was, like, sure. you know, not a very good reason, probably, but right. uh, it was a combination of that and his service to the country and his uh, character, of which, you know, he's questionable in some ways, I suppose, but... Who's right. isn't, you know, and in France, they wouldn't think any about that at all. But Alice,
1: he represented yeah. but a the, bright new future at the time. Yeah, he, did. he did. And he was yeah.
2: well-spoken, and it was the first TV election, mm-hmm. and he just came off better on TV than Nixon did. But those were the days when, you know, there wasn't this gap, this polarization that exists today. I mean, I think it's changed since I was in Congress. It's gotten noticeably worse. Yeah, definitely. And, I agree. <clears throat> But anyway, um, it
1: gets worse all the time. I
2: am. I'm not just optimistic because I was there to pass a a veterans claims bill that has a lot of good stuff in it and passed unanimously with every Republican and every Democrat voting for it. And President Bush, who I wasn't that big a fan of, signed it into law in his signing statement called it good government. So you could have blown me over with a feather, you know. And even people who usually vote no, like Dennis Kucinich and Ron Paul at the time were the guys who would vote against anything. You know. And uh-huh. you might have all green up on the board for, you know, naming some post office or congratulating some champion sports team. And, yeah. and Kucinich and Paul would be red, you know, like we did knows. Because they right. we shouldn't waste our time and the people's money doing these frivolous memorializing resolutions. But, you know, for my veterans' bill, it was hundred percent green. And I went, Well, you know what? And, and President George W. Bush signing into law, I said, you know, there's got to be more common ground than that, you know. We yeah. just hit something that everybody agrees on, which is well, that our great. veterans need to be taken care of better. Yeah. And I guess mean, the infrastructure is one of them. We passed, I was on the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee of the House, and we passed a very good infrastructure bill that was bipartisan and was voted on a bipartisan basis out of the House and went to the Senate again. Was killed by Republican senators' holds on it and threats of a filibuster because they didn't want President Obama to have any success. You know, it was mm-hmm. they had said that at the beginning of his term. Our goal is to make him a one-term president, and they basically fought against anything. Sure. That you know, to the you know, I think the the rejection of his Supreme Court nominee was kind of the. The extreme that that went to, and it's a shame that it, that it did. Right. But Merrick Garland was no flaming liberal, you know. I mean, he was a center centrist uh, yeah. judge.
1: I got to be so, honest. Just hearing you say these <laughs> things, it just it feeds my it feeds this fatigue, you know, talking about people well, blocking other people just because, and it's not perpetuating their agendas. And uh, anyway, I uh, well,
2: you know what that, what's exhausting. happening right now is
1: that that blocking and filibustering. Is
2: being the rules are being changed by this Senate under Mitch McConnell to make it possible for them to pass more and more stuff and confirm judges and other appointees with 51 votes without having to go to a 60 vote majority to to shut down a filibuster, you know. And so, yeah. you know, if and when, and I hope it's when, the shoe's on the other foot. And if enough people, for instance, in 2018, come out and and really. You know, not everybody's going to agree with me or, you know, want, want to support Democratic candidates, but, but, uh, there's, there is a possibility at some point in the future, if not next year, there will be a stronger Democratic showing in the election. And all of a sudden, you know, Republicans who removed the tools the minority could use are going to find that those changes will be used against them. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it really is a, it's a constantly changing government that we have. I, the, the main thing that I'm concerned about and that I'm trying to work to uh, prevent is the Citizens United effect being permanent, you know, because there's nobody else that has that kind of money like the Koch brothers or, mm-hmm. you know. the And also the fact that it's, according to that Supreme Court decision, it's foreign-owned corporations as well as U.S. corporations that can make these unlimited donations. and and that is just nuts, you know. I, yeah, I can't right. believe, and the, and the right of you know corporations to have personhood. I mean, I was kind of expecting a corporation to say, "Yeah, uh, well, you want Second Amendment rights too?" Like, you know, GE wants to have a machine gun on top of their office so they can, you know, keep oh. demonstrators away. So, <laughs> but it's you know, oh, you man. can get ridiculous with it if you start talking yeah. about person personhood and you know, Bill of Rights. Uh, applying to corporations, but mm-hmm. anyway, you know, I think there's optimism because the people of this country have been very resilient through a number of really down, you know, worrisome times. And,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, this may be in some ways the most worrisome time that certainly that I've confronted, and, you know, yeah. observed in my lifetime, but I, you know, we haven't seen the pendulum swing back yet. And the question is how far it'll swing. Yeah, we'll see. So, yeah. So anyway, I'm not without. You're still office. optimistic. Okay. Okay. I am. Although, Although i you know, I'm, I'm really glad that I'm not. I spent ten years in elective office, and that was enough. It's, it's yeah, you know, somebody else. I represented six hundred fifty thousand people uh, in the, what was the 19th district of New York, at that time, and I'm not under the illusion that I'm the only person that could do that.
1: You know, right. It's just. Right somebody else's turn so anyway it's um okay probably enough about politics but yes, i was going to say that i'm glad you said it first i do have one more question though when you Mm -hmm. are and this is uh this is more about this is a a side note to politics when you're sitting at your desk and you're working in dc do you ever just pull up espn.com and just read about the yankees or something Sports is one of my big escapes. I mean, I okay, good. If, if
2: it wasn't for, Mad- good. wasn't for March
1: Madness,
2: wasn't for March Madness, and you know, tennis, and um, now it's the NBA playoffs. Yeah, I'm not as into baseball as I am into okay, uh, I just football
1: threw out the and basketball. And, team that came to mind.
2: You know, who knows how they're going to be this year? Too early to say. Yeah, um, the Mets are off to a very Met-like start.
1: I'm just wondering if you can do that. Is there levity? I can do that. When you and go to music. work every day in, the, in, in D.C., is there levity at all during the day where you're like, you know what, I'm just going to see how the Jets are doing? or what oh, I, yeah. You know what I mean? Okay. What movie where am, am I going to go to tonight?
2: John Yarmouth from Kentucky, who was one of my class of 2006. He's still there, by the way, in, in the House of Representatives, was chair of the unofficial bourbon caucus. <laughs> Kentucky, yeah you know, you the, be- the number of the best bourbons that are made. And so sure, sure. sometimes after the votes were all done, he would say, Bourbon caucus meeting and I'm our- in my office <laughs> and about uh-huh. half of the members would troop over there to have uh, uh, a couple of shots of bourbon. But there were, were various times. Look, I I had people I worked with very well on on the other side of the aisle. I'm married into a West Point family that's you know, been pretty conservative with a few exceptions, but uh-huh. I think my mother-in-law, my late mother-in-law who just passed away a couple months ago, uh, oh. was, I'm the first Democrat she ever voted for. And, oh, okay. <laughs> but she uh, she's going to be buried next to her husband, uh, Colonel William Bingham at the West Point Cemetery, oh. uh, about 30 yards from Custer's grave. It's just... You know, I, we all have all learned to speak to each other civilly, and we disagree Good. about some things and agree about yeah. others. It's interesting; we have so much agreement about the environment. Yeah, my Republican family members and I—I I guess they still remember that conservation and conservative come from the same root. But I think there's a lot of that. There are a lot, a lot of people who are fiscally conservative and traditionally Republican, but don't want to have dirty water and yeah. You know, yeah. Tainted, poisoned water or air for their kids to breathe. Yeah. Why would anyone want that? Yeah. Well, you, you, you know, maybe if they were getting so many millions of dollars that they would never be thrown out of Congress. Yes. Uh, and they could afford to have, you know, a bubble around them or something. But right. You know. There we go back into politics again. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. Okay. I got it. Let's. Uh, let's. I want to talk about music. That's that's yeah, a, that. that's what I. That's the fun part, anyway. Um, And I got to start with, and maybe this is a question you've been asked a million times, I don't know, but how does it feel to be the focal point of what is arguably the cheesiest album cover in rock history?
2: (laughs) It's good to be known for something. Um, (laughs) And actually, the way that happened was we were shooting with a very well-known California album cover photographer who put a strip of masking tape on the floor of his studio and said, all I want is you guys all have your feet on that piece of tape and I'm just going to shoot you and you just relax and just lean on each other or uh-huh. bump into each other, hang your arms, you know, shoulder and we were all clothed. We all had jeans and shirts on and we looked like we do in that picture. And for two hours, we were you know forced to interact because we were all trying to stand on this strip of tape That was too short for us to be apart from each other. Sure. Last, you know, he stopped at near the end. He said, I got two shots left. Why don't you all take your shirts off? Oh, goodness. (laughs) So we took our shirts off. And wouldn't you know, that's the one the record company chose. Of course. And then Kmart was going to refuse to carry the album unless the art department of the record company airbrushed in some jeans. So they did corners of jeans. If you look on the on the album cover, there's you know my hips and I think Glances or one of uh-huh. the other guys. You can see a little bit of blue at the bottom okay, of the
1: okay. cover, and so no one thinks keep... everyone's naked, right?
2: Well, yeah, you know some people. I mean, <laughs> it never occurred to us, you know,
1: right, because right.
2: we weren't seeing what he was seeing through the lens. But it's not a big deal. I think there okay. are worse album covers, than, oh, and sure. certainly better album covers, but it's a really good record. I mean, there's some, some oh, things I'm really here. proud of on
1: that record. Sure. Love that record. It's just fallen into pop culture infamy for, you know what I mean, it's a, you know, yeah. for being a weird album cover, a weird photo. Well, I, I can you tell, tell you that, the
2: you know, the record that stopped, uh, that stopped Silva One from going to number one on WABC in New York, which was the big Top 40 station at the time, was Disco Duck by... Uh, oh, really? <laughs> and... I am so glad today that when we go out, we have to do disco. That we, we don't have to do disco, Doc. Yeah, that's do true. One oh
1: man, I never thought of that. <laughs> you know, there's oh, a plus so and a right. minus to everything. Yes. Right. Oh man, that is great. Okay. So I uh, now so I had wanted to reach out to you and one of my listeners. His name's Rob Goldsmith. I always reach out to my listeners and say, mm-hmm. you know, if there's an artist that you like, that you want to hear from, that you don't hear from often enough, tell me and I'll try and track him down. And he okay. had recommended that I track down you. And he had some questions that he wanted me to ask. Um, right. well, so one the of them in particular was around the ending of the band. One thing I thought that was really interesting about your book was that it's like 80% politics, and Orleans takes up about. Six pages. And I, so I, I feel like I wonder if politics is more what you're really about at this point, and the Orleans side of the story is kind of a hobby on the background. But what brought, what's fed into the, the, you know, the Orleans falling apart, basically. Well,
2: there are probably you know several different versions, versions of that. Uh, yeah, you know, coming with different points of view from different members of the band. But it's something that happens to a lot of bands. And especially when they first uh, succeed, that all of a sudden there's something to fight about. And yeah. when you're struggling, I mean, I've heard this from young bands today, and from so I mean, what's his name, uh, Randy Meisner from the mm-hmm. Eagles, said yeah. he's never been in a band that wasn't on the verge of breaking up.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: I think that's so true. I mean, from my experience, yeah. you know, I I uh, before I was. Uh, playing with Larry and Lance, before, you know, they came to Woodstock to play with me because I came back from playing guitar behind a woman named Karen Dalton in Europe uh, mm. on a tour opening to Santana. And before that, I played with Taj Mahal. And before that, I was recording with Seals and Crofts and Grace, other people, and John Simon. And, you know, oh, I was a studio cat and I had already written Half Moon that Janice had recorded. And yeah. so I was in demand somewhat as a guitar player and a songwriter. And I, I just said, you know, to myself, I've got to, you know, try to start a band, you know, doing original songs and not go out as a hired gun anymore. Uh, and I'll just try, I'll try to find the best musicians I could. And Wells Kelly I had played with actually on my Action album, which was the first solo record I made. It was in the
3: spring. Here to stay oh yes yeah, she's gone.
2: Harvey Brooks from the Electric Flag and Blonde on Blonde Dylan's album probably some people think uh-huh. his best album. Of the bass sure. player uh, was producing me and also playing bass on the album and a number of other uh, you know wonderful musicians. But without listing them, you know I would say that I had a reputation and that's why you know the other guys came to rehearse in my basement in Woodstock as opposed to us going to Long Island to you know rehearse at the Hoppins place or going to, 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 you know, to rehearse near Wells's family. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not to mention the fact that Woodstock at the time was, and to to some extent still is a musical hotbed. And especially back then, it was a great place to interact with other bands and other musicians. So, and I had, you know, a couple of studios that were really high quality uh, to record in. But anyway, the In the beginning the um, the club owners and the promoters wanted to book us as John Hall and New Orleans. before mm-hmm. that it had been the John Hall band you know right. or john hall and friends and, and then I wanted it to be a band, and so did wells and larry who we played as a trio with just those you know three uh me and Wells and Larry for probably nine months, and we all switched instruments and it was totally spontaneous we could we could jump from one song to another or one time signature to another a key to another just by kind of looking at the other guy right you know everybody's ears were so uh attuned and and their imaginations were so free that some people think that that brief time you know, was actually the best of work. that was the real orleans when we were a trio and we were, and then but Larry wanted to play double guitar with me which I also wanted to do and, and I also wanted to be able to play keyboard and have keyboard and guitar, and so we needed to find a bass player, and his brother, Lance, graduated from high school and came up to Woodstock and tried out for the band and, of course, got the job. He's a terrific bass player and especially a terrific harmony singer and, and lead singer now. He's grown into a lead singer, but he's, at the time, was just like, he was the guy with a high falsetto who could hit the notes that nobody else could hit, and uh, in tune, and they phrased together, and I've you know, been singing with Larry long enough and wound up singing with Lance long enough, too, that that uh, don't get your mommy's car. Okay. Uh, <laughs> my wife's just coming home, and the dogs are racing out to see her. Oh, um, cool. Yeah, I mean, it started out being my band. Yeah. And then it was also uh, my ex, Johanna, ex-wife and songwriter, a co-writer, uh, who wrote most of the songs on the first couple records in and, and uh, wrote still the one to dance with me and
3: Dance with me? I want to be a partner, can't you see? The music is just starting.
2: The record company and our managers were for obvious reasons were looking to us to write more hits and everybody else started uh, you know started writing you know more and i some some of the guys in the band were better writers than others all of a sudden there was a there was a different level of income that was obvious to all because the artist royalties and the gig you know fees which we were splitting equally were coming in, but the writing and publishing royalties were mainly from the hits songs. Especially, were mainly going to me and Johanna. So it started to become a uh, that's what I it started to become a fight about songs, and sure. and uh, that's never good. And what I, I wrote in the book, we needed a shrink, or we needed our our managers to say, you know, yeah. you guys are crazy. You know, I you know, I was crazy, really. It's although I'm glad that I made the solo records I made. I'm glad that I went to the, mm-hmm. the whole nukes thing. I mean, that's how history happened and, and I'll never know what it would have been like. I mean we could have flamed out on our third album or our fifth album or or we could have been, you know, right on the heels of the Eagles ourselves because we were on the same label with David mm-hmm. Geffen behind us with Asylum Records and uh you know, Johnny Mitchell and the Eagles and Jackson Brown were all label mates and it was it was a terrific outfit to be a part of. I think about a lot of things that could have gone differently, or things that I could have done differently. And the truth is, there's nothing I can do to change it now. So, right, right. Uh, I'm happy to say that we're, you know, we're playing. We're still. I mean, Lance and I are the only two surviving members of the original quartet. Yeah. But we're uh, we're out playing uh, probably a couple gigs a month. You know? Oh, great. Okay. And. But if they pay us enough money, we go out and it takes, sure, of uh, course. I mean, we, we're spread all over now. Lance is in Nashville. Uh, Lane Hoppin, who's singing and playing keyboards and trumpet now, uh, who sounds just like the other two Hoppins. You know, he's singing some of Larry's parts and um, and covering them very well. And yeah. uh, Fly Amaro, a guitar player and singer who replaced me when I was either in Congress or, Doing solo projects we're finally getting to play on stage together and good so it's really uh, and Charlie Morgan is our our most frequent drummer he's um, Peter O'Brien from Woodstock also plays with the band and has recorded with the band but Charlie's uh, kind of the main guy now and he uh, he worked for 11 years with Elton John and he's a you know a big mucky muck and also Nashville is where he lives now and he goes out with Tricia Yearwood and all these country artists when he's not okay. working with the guess who or you know, yeah. or, uh, or, or or Elton or us, you know. And then yeah. I'm doing some I'm doing some book and music like solo, yeah. acoustic guitar and talking about the songs and talking about my experiences and about the book. And that's also very going very well. I just sure. I just did one uh at the Philly Folk Song Society. You know, Was the audience was was so receptive and they laughed and clapped as much for the stories as they did for the songs. Sure. Oh, that's and great. Um, and it really is it's fun for me. I mean I can do I can have fun just playing a an hour or an hour and a half of of music and singing the songs. Yeah. But there's so much that people really like to hear about what went into this song or why did you write sure. this on it? Where did the inspiration come from? Not to mention, you know, anything about the political world. So, yeah. So that's kind of what I'm doing in between the old okay old stuff. Good. And,
1: and all that together, you, know, you can. It makes a. I mean, I'm guessing. You know, still the one has never really gone away. I, I don't. I don't think of it as a love song. I almost think of it as like a love declaration song. But it's played in commercials. It's played all over the place.
2: Could you yeah, live off the,
1: just still the one for the no, rest of your life?
2: Not not anymore. Really. Uh, there's a reason why Christine McVie came out of retirement and went back on the road with Fleetwood Mac, yeah,
3: and the reason oh, okay. is that
2: the ro- that, that her royalties took the same percentage hit that mine and everybody Jeez. else's.
1: If Christine I mean, McVie can't make a living just living off her, you know, her, the, what Fleetwood, she's Fleetwood, Fleetwood Mac the world. royalties. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that's uh, frightening.
2: Well, it you know, and that's I mean, the, if you look at this, you know, look at the concert schedule for the summer. There are yeah. a lot of you know, pretty old guys going out in the oh, road. Yeah. Guys That's and right. gals. And th- the underlying reason is that everybody's royalties have been just ripped to shreds by streaming yeah. audio. Yeah.
1: Huh. Let me ask you a question about Still the One. This is something I've always wondered, and I hope I hope this doesn't bother you, but I wonder if it's ever, you know, how I'm trying to figure out how I even want to word this. It's, like I said, it's such a, it's a song that represents, a certain kind of relationship, you know? Um recommitting, fidelity, finding that love again. Does it ever seem strange or counterintuitive that you and the woman you wrote it with got divorced? Is that yeah. too strange of a custom- I, I hope no, it's not, not too personal, but you no, know what it's mean? Not. I mean?
2: And I do know what you mean. And uh uh but I can also say that uh Melanie and I have been married for fifteen years now and we're, of course. we're very happy together. and Nothing that, against uh, Melanie at all. And, and you and sound no, so not, happy. And, and so, you know, every couple goes through friction and goes through ups and downs and uh, parting of the ways to some extent here or there. And there is no perfect marriage or perfect relationship yeah. that I've ever seen. There's always some kind of dysfunction. The question is, you know, how how you handle it. And, you know, it takes both parties to handle it. And so, this is just what we did and what wound up happening. And I'm grateful that we wrote those songs yeah. together. And I had, you know, had a daughter, you know, we had a daughter together and she was now made me a grandfather. And, uh, Oh, nice. Congrats. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things I think about my, when my granddaughter uh, and her future and maybe her future children, when I think about what we're doing or not doing about climate change, but, yeah. you know, I mean, that's much more of a motivation to me than what I'm going to experience because, I'll be gone before the worst of it happens. But anyway, uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. And also, you know, still the one is a phrase. It's not only about a relationship, uh, and it's a great song that a friend of ours asked, um, asked us to write uh, because she was going through a divorce with her husband, and she wanted uh, us to write a song about people staying together. Yeah. And so that was kind of what what spurred to, oh, about it. Okay. But since then, it's been a commercial for ABC television. It's been a commercial mm-hmm. for, you know, uh, it's been it was just used on Hallmark movie of the week last two <laughs> years. And it was in of course. John Travolta's movie, uh, uh, Primary Colors. Yeah. And uh, it was in the movie Butter with Hugh Jackman and Olivia Wilde. And it's just, oh, by the way, it was used as a commercial by at the same time by System and Burger King, so you could gain weight was still the one, and lose weight was still the one at the same
3: time. I mean, it's oh, just, uh, it's
2: taken on a life, a life of its own. And sure. There's sure. not too many people that, that can say that about us, you know, at least one song, you know, yeah, that, yeah. that they wrote.
1: It's got many, many purposes. It well, many it was feelings. actually
2: used when when uh, George W. Bush ran for re-election in 2004, oh, yeah. uh, Melly and I were watching TV here in, in Dover Plains, New York and saw the news cut away. They said, now we're going to go to Columbus, Ohio for the unveiling of the new Bush-Cheney campaign theme song. And there they were waving, the, you know, oh, or George was anyway, waving his V for victory signs over his head and the confetti coming down. And our master version, the original, was still the one coming out of the speakers. And... You know, they hadn't asked permission from the record company, yeah. the publishing company, the uh, the writers, the the artists themselves, the singers and players, yeah. nobody. And and here he was running. One of the slogans he was using as a campaign theme was the ownership society. You know,
1: there should be a country uh-huh.
2: where people can own their own house and people can right. can uh, start a start a small business and own it. You know, and yeah. you know, intellectual property is a big part of our positive balance of trade in this country. It's, you know, software and movies, American movies and culture are huge around the world and have been since, you know, the middle of the last century. And if you start thinking that you can give music away or anything that can be digitized or sell it for a fraction of what the copyright law says it should be sold for uh, or sell it against the owner's wishes, I think it's kind of like, kind of like a hammer or like if I that a new uh, doodad to sell at the hardware store, you know, right. a new kind of pruning shears or something. I should be able to decide what the price is and yeah. where I want to sell it or even if I want to sell it. There should be nobody forcing me to sell it, but different with music. Yeah. And so, you know, we wound up having to uh, – Send cease and desist letters to the RNC and to the Bush Cheney campaign. And the next day they announced that they were going to stop using the song. So two years after that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, two years after that, I ran Mm -hmm. for the first time. And people said, So why do you use Still the One for your theme song? I said, (laughs) Because I haven't haven't been elected yet.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: Maybe on my re election, I'll I'll use Still the One. But instead, I used the Steve Van Zandt song that uh, Jackson Brown. Uh, recorded, and as I sang with him numerous times, I am a patriot.
3: I was walking with my brother, and he wondered what's on my mind. Uh, yeah and and I love
2: my country and yeah. and because I thought that that idea of patriotism was being stolen by the right, you know stolen sure, by sure stolen is. by yeah by conservatives and by the right- you know, and the more militaristic type you know- part, part of our society yeah. and you know if you're for peace and if you're for nature and for endangered species being allowed to survive and you're you know you're for clean water and clean air, you're a patriot. Yeah, it no, doesn't yeah, make you any true. less of a patriot. Sure. And so I used that song, and it became a huge part uh, of my first campaign.
1: So let me ask but, you: What uh, is the proper process then for using a song? Because I'm thinking, and this is, you know, I wasn't really going to go here, but this is a, it's a very hot button issue. Every, especially Republican that plays a rock song gets deemed for or dinged for it by the person. It's often Neil Young with "Rockin' in the Free World" or something. Or like that. Or Tom Petty. Yes, or, Tom or Bruce Reddy. Springsteen. Yes. So when, but what is like if I, uh, you know, if I'm the coach of a high school basketball t- team and I want, I don't know, fight the power to be played when my kids come out onto the court. Yeah. You know, or
2: if you're the of uh, the conductor of the high school band, you know, yeah. and you want you want dance with me or tell the one or any right. any song of ours, BMI and ASCAP are the biggest performing rights societies. And a CSAC, which is a Canadian based one, is which has a lot of affiliations with American with US writers, songwriters as well. Those those companies collect airplay royalties and they also license things like uh restaurants and clubs that play background music. Sure. Uh they have those clubs if they or even it's a boutique uh, okay. or a store of some sort, the music is part of the ambiance that they're creating yeah. okay. for people to shop by. So that makes sense. The theory which has been accepted and is in practice is that those, those venues, those stores and restaurants have to pay yeah. and they pay a blanket license to use anybody in BMI's catalog, Got anybody it. in okay. a- ASCAP's catalog, and anybody in CSAC's catalog, and they pay by the year and it's split, you know, pro rata that they have computer programs that actually are fairly accurate in determining, you know, relatively speaking, which songs are. Being played the most and and how they should be divvied up and those sort of I guess they're called compulsory licenses anyway. That's the claim that okay. the streaming audio services are using yeah. to you know
1: uh, oh, to audio. Uh, I mean okay. these other
2: uses like a restaurant or a nightclub between sets of a live band or yeah. or, a, or a clothing store or something. They're not selling music as their main product. Right. You no, know, it's just a it's a it's a side effect that, that, yeah. that they that they want to license so that they can make their store a more interesting or pleasant, attractive place. And so for Pandora or Spotify uh, or any of the streamers to say that we should, you know, they're, we're totally in the music business. All we do is sell music or oh, we also sell advertising because of people coming to us for the music. But, yeah. you know, that's our main thing is music. And we're going to act like we're a boutique or a restaurant and, mm-hmm. and use this compulsory license. And the courts so far, well, there are a couple of cases working their way through the courts that may, that may succeed with, you know, where different publishers and songwriters are challenging that. But that's a big part of what's, yeah. what's you know, hurting a songwriting community and, you know, not just famous people, but uh, people who were behind the scenes and wrote songs sure. and lived on the money from, okay. from that craft so, the question I've is. I wondered what you know, the problem is. Yeah. Well, I mean, the next generation, or this generation that's, you know, the younger musicians today uh, and writers today, how they're going to make a living. And a lot of them have figured out how to monetize yeah. YouTube, you know, and if they can uh, get more YouTube views than somebody juggling two cats. Right, uh, right. Or whatever, yeah. you know, then yeah. then they can make millions and they can go on tour and all that kind of stuff but most people don't including most young bands don't have that kind of success easily on the internet yeah
1: well let me ask you this though i mean we're if we're if we're really talking about here that the problem with george w bush uh playing still the one is that it wasn't cleared beforehand if it were somebody if it were a Democrat playing that song, would you still have the same philosophical issues with it if they didn't no. go through the pr- clearing process? Well, I would have the just, same. I don't want a they would have to report go song because it doesn't I, represent the me.
2: Dem- Democratic convention, 2008, I believe it was. It's the only one I, I've ever been to. I was a superdelegate mm-hmm. as a member of Congress. So out uh, in Denver. And before the convention, they went through my publisher who came to me. To ask if it was okay if they played "Still the One," while Ted Kennedy came out uh, was very late in his life, and, and but he came out on stage to the strains of "Still the One," and of course I said yes, and mm-hmm. in fact let them use it for nothing, right? Because I was totally in sympathy with what he was, you know, basically all his life had been trying to do, of course, and especially he was saying Medicare for all before everybody else picked up on it. You know, there are cases, I mean, we have the right, um, I have the right as a songwriter to veto any use that my publisher runs by me, and we have, in fact, you know, not let it be used for uh, any oil or coal or, you know, nuclear utilities or that sort of thing. And also um, cigarettes and hardware. And, you know, it's... I mean, actually I don't think even even you know, soft like beer or wine, you know, I just sure. you know as Larry used to say, you know, when he was still on this planet, you know, the next time we come through the state we'll be sponsored by depends, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it hasn't happened yet. So I think most writers have a combination of what they would like to see and what their principles would most mm-hmm. uh approve of and also everybody has a price, you know, yeah, pretty much yeah,
1: everybody. Yeah. You know, okay. so depending
2: on what, how badly you need it and how much money is offered, you know, I think it just should be up to the creator and the owner of the yeah. property. So, um, definitely. Okay. Yeah. So
1: I'm that's curious the story what, on the, what the behind the scenes, what goes on behind all that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, look, I, uh, I've i kept you for a while. I do have one or two just little questions I want to ask. Um, one of them, and I was thinking about this, when, in reading Because at the beginning of your book, you were talking about how you've always been sort of a ham. And I wonder if something that hadn't occurred to me, other than the fact that politics and being a musician both have an element of theater to them, and let's be honest, narcissism in a way, do you feel like music or politics is a calling? When you were growing up, did you feel like called to do – I would imagine you felt called to do music before the politics kicked in, but maybe not – did you feel called to do what you become accomplished yes. in your life?
2: yes, I was felt called to do music, started playing piano with both hands on my family's chickering upright piano when I was four and a half
1: uh-huh
2: and when I figured out the marine Sin with both hands and a bunch of other songs, my parents decided to send me for lessons and It's interesting because I was just on Facebook today and i was uh I saw something about a new study that just came out from I forget what university. That shows uh, that the brain, the young brain, is actually formed differently when kids are taught piano at a long, young mm-hmm, age. And mm-hmm. I wrote about that in the book. And I also wrote about it today. I commented on this post about this uh, this new study, saying that you know when I was on the school board, I saw studies from you know a couple of sources. NAM, of course, is a sponsored one. And, you know, you could expect the National Association of Musi- Musical Instrument Manufacturers to maybe try to shade the study if they can, you know, that so it, you know, would look well like they wanted it to look, but I'm not saying they did that, but but also psychology today ran their own study and both of them showed that uh kids who were taught piano at kindergarten age, you know, five years roughly mm-hmm. uh had eleven years later they had thirty percent higher scores in math and languages. And I tried to get my school board interested in this. I said, we already have the pianos and keyboards. Uh We need to rent, you know, I mean, we, we need to hire a couple of probably part-time, you know, piano teachers to come in and work with our existing music staff to be able to get this to all kindergartners. And, of course, you know, it was voted down eight to one on a nine-person board. And, uh uh-huh. And the reason is because nobody can think farther than the next election, which is three years on the school board. Nobody can think farther away than this year's budget passing. You know, it's so much like America that Uh short-term profits or short-term political success or, you know, short-term goals take precedence over really important longer-term goals. And nobody, nobody on that board, when I was there, could look out 11 years and say, "I'm still going to be here." Yeah, oh, they're all right. Gone. Yeah, and and they also were under pressure to meet federal and state mandates that they have to teach every uh, special ed kid that moves into the district. That they have to, you know, if a blind child moves into the district, with their family, as one did when I was on the board, we have to send them to an approved school for the blind, which meant a little yellow bus with one child on it going yeah. an hour each way to a school upstate from, from, you know, this area. And, yeah. you know, we're required to teach a certain amount of HIV awareness, you know, which never, when I was in school, that wasn't, that didn't exist, you know. And uh, we're required to teach, uh, you know, so many, that has to be so much uh, phys ed and there has to be enough math and enough uh History and enough languages and so on that kids can can take the standardized tests and do you know a halfway decent job on them, and you you know you start cutting into the school day or extending the school day, you run into trouble with different constituencies.
1: Uh-huh. You know there are
2: parents there are parents who want new uniforms for the fo- football team that come to the school board meetings, and come up to the mic during the public comment period. There are parents who have a special ed kid and don't think he or she's being treated right or has enough attention. They'll come. And complain about it, and then there'll be you know, representatives of the union, you know, different unions—the teachers, the custodial union, the su- uh, superintendents, uh, you know, management union, et cetera, That would, you know, be be there with their agenda, and we, the citizens, who were you know volunteering, it's a, you have to get elected, but you don't get paid anything. There's no benefits mm-hmm. and no pay in New York yeah. to be on a school board, and you get to leave the house just when your family's sitting down to dinner. Right, right? So, you know, it's really kind of a thankless job. And whatever you do, somebody's mad at you. And in that kind of environment, asking for something that would pay off 11 years out just was impossible. Yeah, you of know? course. So for me, I couldn't persuade anybody, not a single other member of the board. And you know, it's it's interesting that now there's another study that basically this one actually measures the parts the parts of the brain that grew differently and you know, quantifies the physical uh, difference between the brain of a child who learned piano when they were young and the child that didn't. And since I saw studies that basically were studying the results 11 years out, it's interesting to see one that studies the physical side of it that confirms that something might be going on there. You know, this is, you know, so out of the pale of what the average person thinks about and what anybody in government talks about. Oh, Um,
1: yeah. Oh um, yeah, but anyway. Yeah. I talk okay. That. <laughs> no, that's. Uh, I I agree with you. It's another not to not to sound like the cynic that I am, but it's just one more example to me of how things are kind of broken.
2: Well, it's um, yeah.
1: It's why we shouldn't cut the uh,
2: the uh, endowment for the arts. Or the, you know, yeah. the public broadcasting. You know, TV or radio budget, and why we should continue to have grants for gifted students, not just in computer programming, but in music or playwriting yeah. or, you know, ballet or whatever, to pursue that because it's it's all part of elevating the human spirit and, yeah, and right. the the spirit of our country The sort of, you know, it's an uplifting thing that's available to all of us as observers, if not participants. But anyway, so yeah. was there another question There's, too? Or?
1: Um, well, I wanted to hear the John Denver story because I thought that was really kind of a, uh, I, I yeah. always find... There's moments in our lives, and, and obviously famous rock stars have bigger moments than the rest of us do, but there's moments right. in our lives that sort of, you know, pivot pivot our direction in a way that uh, sets it on a course that's better than it would have happened otherwise, you know? It's like the sliding doors idea. This sounded like kind of one of those moments for you.
2: It, it was, and, you know, I wasn't well-known at that time, but I had written Half Moon. I was already starting to get real songwriting royalties from Janice's posthumous record Pearl and- album, and, yeah. to mm-hmm. me Well, man, she was a huge star and sold, you know, it's kind of ironic and sad that when someone like her dies, they sell immediately way more copies than they probably would have sold if they were alive. Uh, Whitney Houston, same thing, you know, but anyway, um, I was playing at the Cellar Door, a club in Washington, D.C., down uh, under the, uh, below the elevated highway in Georgetown, and Opening to the Smothers Brothers, who they're mainly a comedic act, although they did play bass and guitar and sing. But they they had a TV show, The Smothers Brothers Hour, and they were yeah I remember personalities as you know more than folk singers really. But I played my acoustic and electric show, and I did half moon at the end of it, and I got a polite round of applause. But people talked through most of my show, uh-huh. and it's kind of discouraging, you uh-huh. know. I mean, because I was really trying, and I was writing the best songs. At the time that I knew how to write, and put a rug over my amplifier to quiet it down so I wouldn't deafen the, you know, folks in the nearby tables. And but anyway, so I finished and you know took a bow and went upstairs. I barely got in the restroom. I walked in, closed the door, and almost immediately knock knock knock, come in, and in comes John Denver. Uh huh. And and he said, that was really good, John. I really really like that. And don't worry about. The audience. It was just a mismatch. You know, they weren't the right audience for you, but they still, some of them still got it. And it just keep on doing what you're doing and things are going to work out. That's great. And and I just, I shook his hand and said, thanks so much. And, you know, I love your singing and playing. And, you know, of course. I really appreciate your coming up to say hello and say that to me. And he said, no problem. And, you know, hope to see you again, you know, on the road. And he walked out and I never saw him again uh uh-huh. uh, and but I've made an effort to this day if I hear a performer or a band that's really you know got something going and is playing in a lounge somewhere or a coffee house somewhere or you know opening to somebody else or whatever, and sort of fighting through that kind of audience interaction mm-hmm. fighting to get attention and hold it uh I try to go up. To them on a break uh, and say, you know, I'm John Hall from Orleans and I'm, you know, guitar player and singer. And I, you know, I just wanted to tell you, I just happened to be here, but I wanted you (laughs) to know that I really dug what you did and that, you know, you should, you know, don't get discouraged. Just keep working at it. And I told the story in the book about the the time that the, the most overt time that the musicians union went to bat for me and for the band. Uh, was when Orleans was playing at a little club called The Tropical in Port Ewan, New York, just south of Kingston, just south of, of Woodstock. And Sa- mm-hmm. so we're just a short drive from home. But this club, The Tropical, was a dump that had very few mm-hmm. people in it that, that I ever saw. And we played. The, we were hired for Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday. And we were supposed to get $100 to split between us per night, which is not even union scale. And we weren't doing this gig through the union, which is, you know, not what you're supposed to do. I mean, the union theoretically wouldn't be happy about us doing a non-union gig Mm -hmm. and being union members, which I certainly was because of my Broadway work and my studio work. But I called up the um, chairman of the union, the local in Woodstock. And I guess it was the Woodstock, Kingston area. And he, he asked me for the details, and I said because the club owner said on Wednesday night we only had like ten people there. He said I said we need to get paid tonight. He said, No, not, I'm not going to pay you tonight. Uh, we'll see how it goes on the weekend, you know. Oh, and then gosh. Mr. Nuzzo, uh <laughs> said, said uh, you know maybe I'll pay you Friday and Saturday. So you know I relayed this to the head of the union. And so we, he said, just go back on Friday and play your gig. Don't worry about it. So we went in Friday and we set up and we're tuning up. And and we see this guy in a suit come in who is like twice as wide as me and half a foot taller. And lean over the bar and grab the club owner, by the collar, and pull him across the bar till his face was like an inch from the guy in the suit's face. And uh-huh. talk to him and, you know. It was obvious, we couldn't hear it, but it was obviously a very stern talking to. And then he let the guy back down on the ground behind the bar, took a handful of cash from him, came back to the stage and counted out our $100 for Wednesday and then another 100 <laughs> for Friday. He said, he'll give you no trouble tomorrow. Oh, you know, that's great. Have a good night, boys. <laughs> you know, it's just oh, like, great. you know, it, it was exactly what it looked like. But yeah. sometimes the underdog needs that, you know. There was no violence, but there certainly was the implication that there might be. Sure. And uh, this little club owner didn't want to, you know, it wasn't worth $300 to him to find exactly. out. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's, classic. that's kind of my other side of the John Denver story, you know, or my going in and telling somebody in a club playing for five people or playing sure. and getting talked over. is like, you know, I've been there.
1: Or, yeah. Orleans
2: was there. The next week after that gig at the Tropical, we played a showcase at the Mercer Arts Center, and we were offered a, a production deal with uh, Cashman and West, who we produced Tim Croce and various wow. other people, and and had a, uh, a label deal going with ABC Records, and we got signed from that gig. Like it was the lowest and the darkest before the dawn. The mm-hmm. week before that. You know, at the Tropical, and the next weekend, we went into the city and played our best and just re- insisted on being optimists and smiling and giving it 100%. And that night, we got the contact that signed us for our first two, r- two records. There you so go. How about that? Y- you just don't know when you your break is going to
1: come. Right, right. Oh, that's great. Well, hey, John, I uh, I want to thank you for talking to me. And I, uh, welcome, I'm sorry John. that I've become such a cynic and so fatigued with politics. Oh no.
2: hey, Through it all, I know, know do.
1: you've done your best, and you've done good things and put them back into the world.
2: Well, so I want to thank so you
1: for that. Yes. You're welcome, John. And yeah.
2: thank you for recycling them back into the world and, and putting a different spin on them, for, not just for me, but for other musicians. and Trying. And, and, I, and writers I tell the stories
1: artists. that don't get told as often. You know what I mean?
0: There you have it, John Hall. I feel bad I wish I wasn't such a cynic guys I just am it wears me out and I'm unfortunately I've I've gotten to that point where I just I don't think that I don't believe that caring or even doing much for me personally makes that big of a difference but yet I say that and I am so grateful for John and his devotion and his passion and service and patriotism so We need people like him out there fighting the good fight. Like I said, I align with him politically. I'm just, I'm exhausted by the topic. So anyway, but there was a lot of good stuff, a lot of fascinating politics stuff and good rock and roll stuff in there as well. I hope you'll check out the book. Hope you'll check out Orlean's music. It's great. And his solo stuff as well. So thank you, John, for doing that. Uh, Next week, we're actually going to kind of keep this patriotism or this... Uh, American music focus for the next couple of weeks through the 4th of July, actually. And next week's guest is the man behind one of the biggest songs of all time. And I don't say that meaning like it was a number one hit or it was it still played on the radio. I'm talking about one of the biggest, most iconic songs in music history. In fact, the song is actually bigger than him. So come back next week. In fact, if you have an idea who that might be, drop me a line. I love hearing uh, when people guess. Also, I got to say again, huge thank you to Rob Goldsmith for recommending John. I had had Orleans on my mind as well as I often do, but I did not know about John's history as being a congressman. So this was a perfect recommendation. Thank you, Rob. And I hope I did what you want me to do. I hope I was less disruptive this time for your sake. Anyway. Uh, down to business as always you can find us on facebook you can like our page you can send me a message on there you can find us on twitter at the hustle pod or you can send me an email at the hustlepod at gmail.com and uh if you have not done so already please go into itunes and subscribe and write a review huge thanks to my right hand man yan the man macavers thank you yan for everything we will see you guys next week come back it's a big one